Well, this morning, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of John, our Believe series. Um, Fred asked me to bring the next passage of Scripture to us. So if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, you can open to John chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 30. We're going to close. No, we're not going to close out this chapter. Not even close. Okay, we are going to be doing 18 through 30. Um, And what I'm going to do is I will read the passage of Scripture, and then I'll pray, and we'll dive into the message this morning. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says this. So before I actually get into this, we know from last week that Jesus had just done what most of us are familiar with, the story of the foot washing, right? So Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He has this exchange with Peter, who Peter is like, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. You're, you're my master. That's something for the lowliest of servants. There's no way you're going to do that. And Jesus rebukes him in a way and says, well, if I can't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. And Peter says, well, then don't just wash my feet, wash all of me, right? And we have this exchange going on. And then when Jesus had washed his feet or washed their feet, he starts to to say some things to them. He starts to speak about what it is that not only he's doing right then and there, but what he's going to be doing. And we kind of pick up on that where uh, in verse 17, he says, if you know these things, everything that he said to them up until this point, you are blessed if you do know them. But then we see in verse 18, he kind of changes gears a little bit. So verse 18 says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus, and Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I'm thankful for you, first and foremost. I'm thankful for the local body that has gathered together here today to worship you and want to gather around your word and in song and just bring glory, honor, and praise to your name. And I pray that as I, as I dissect your word and, and I try to reveal some truths to, to your people this morning, Lord, that you would uh, remove me from this stage, uh, that you would take my place, and that you would just speak truth and allow these words to penetrate the hearts of those uh, sitting underneath my voice and really change them and, and challenge them. Lord, this is a heavy passage of Scripture, and it's a sad passage in a way, but at the same time, we know that you, you use things like this for, for good 
and you use things like this for our redemption. And so help us to really focus in on that, on that truth, and on you this morning. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Fred had mentioned that not every gospel account mentions or accounts for every single event during Jesus's life. In fact, there are very few accounts uh, recorded across all four of the gospels. Jesus's death, his burial, and his resurrection obviously being one of those events. Accounts like these indicate significance Significance regarding the bigger picture of the gospel. This is something that obviously made a huge impact in all four of the gospel writers. Well, where we are this morning is one of the accounts that you can read about in all four of the gospels. Here in John chapter 13, as well as in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, the prediction of Jesus' betrayal by this man named Judas Iscariot. No doubt if you've been in church for any length of time or experienced, you've listened to, you've heard about the Easter story, right? Jesus' betrayal is a known factor in and amongst the history of that story. One could argue that Judas Iscariot is one of the most infamous and notorious characters in all of the Gospels, if not the most. I think that's understandable to look at someone like that who did such a heinous act, right? Betraying the son of God and handing him over to be put to death. He's known as one of the biggest traitors in all of human history. Literally, he's referred to Judas the betrayer. What a title to bear, huh? He's a disciple we hear from very little throughout the gospels um, up until the end of Jesus's ministry. Obviously, the moment of his betrayal, he he was a hypocrite. Fooling everyone around him into thinking he was a true follower of Jesus. And we understand from Matthew 27, verse 5, and Acts 1, 15 to 20, that Judas, overcome by the guilt of what it is that he ultimately will do, which is betray Jesus, took his own life before dawn even broke the next day. Such a sad story of human life, in my opinion, to grow up and then to be a follower, a close-knit follower of Jesus Christ, only to betray him, be overcome by guilt of that betrayal, and then kill yourself. And yet, we'll see, Judas is without a doubt a vital figure in all of redemption history. Now, this is not to say that we should give him any credit. Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. Jesus says, woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not even been born. So no credit to Judas for his cowardly act of betrayal of his teacher, of the Messiah, of his friend, but all credit and glory and honor to God for using one of the darkest moments of betrayal between two individuals to bring about something much, much greater for all of mankind. Amongst the intimacy of the moment between Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 13, Jesus understood that the time was now to reveal his betrayer, to look at him face to face and send him away to do what it is that he's already set out to do. 
Because we know that Jesus' hour had come. Chapter 12, verse 23, we even see this come up again in the beginning of this chapter in verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. His death will take place very soon. And just hours before his betrayal and all that would follow, Jesus, with Judas sitting among them, displays a selfless act of service, foot washing, as an example to the disciples and foreshadowing what was to come. In verses 15 and 16, earlier in the chapter, he's essentially saying to them, so verses 15 and 16, for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. He's essentially saying to them, you're not greater than me. And here's the thing. I do this for you, therefore selflessly serve and love one another. Because if I do it, you ought to. And if you do this, verse 17, you're blessed. But then again, Jesus goes on, I'm not speaking to all of you. I'm not speaking about all of you. I can't promise this to all of you sitting in this room. This is where we are. The moment the betrayer is predicted and announced this morning, I would like to point out four things that I think would be helpful as we kind of unfold the next 13 verses of scripture. Just four things I think that would really help us kind of shape the form of this passage, and then I'll give you some stuff underneath each point. So point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, is that Jesus anticipated his betrayal. Jesus anticipated his betrayal. Verses 18 and 19 again, Jesus says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does, you will believe that I am he. Judas, what an example of a lost opportunity, right? He has walked with, he has talked with, he has witnessed everything that Jesus has said and done during his public ministry. Even back in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John chapter 2, uh, verse 25, we understand that Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. Even Jesus speaking in John chapter 5, verse 42, Judas has to know that Jesus knows that he doesn't truly love him. At any point, Jesus could have called him out. I mean, imagine the weight of knowing Judas' heart for three years. Your friend, someone you shared meals with, someone you did ministry with, and you know in their heart of hearts that they're ultimately going to betray you. They're not invested. They're just along for the ride long enough to find their way out and to betray you. I mean, imagine the weight of knowing that Jesus knows the depths of your heart. Imagine us now in Judas's position, because here's the thing. He does. He knows the depths of your heart. You might be able to put on a front to other people, but Jesus knows what's truly in your heart. And one would think that something like this would spur Judas on to maybe do the right thing, to not succumb to temptation, easy money, 30 pieces of silver, 
for his friend, the Messiah. But if anything, this does the complete opposite. Jesus and his disciples are at what is known to most of us nowadays as the Last Supper. Okay, so that's where we are. Uh, the supper has not taken place yet, but obviously they're in the room where the Last Supper is going to take place. And so uh, they're, they're around the table, and Jesus obviously uh, takes his outer garment off, and he washes the disciples' feet. And Judas, at this point, has already made the deal to betray Jesus. I don't know if you knew that, but by the way, at this point in the gospel account, the deal is done. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, they record this account. He's just looking for a time and a place to do it. There was no prearranging the betrayal uh, necessarily, at least here in this setting, because no one knew that where they were staying that night. In fact, we read that only two disciples knew where they would be. Again, Jesus is a wanted man. We got to remember that from prior sermons and earlier in the gospel. Jesus at this point has a target on his back. People want him dead. They're after him. And so this meeting with his disciples was done in secret. Mark 14, 12 to 16 records that, that two of his disciples went ahead and made arrangements for them to meet in this upper room. This night is for the disciples and Jesus, the true followers of Jesus and the Savior himself. And we'll see following this passage that Jesus has a lot to say to his disciples about the things to come. That'll be in a couple of weeks. Now, earlier in chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, it's important to note that Jesus is fully aware of what's going on. As a matter of fact, chapter 13, earlier in this chapter, verse 2, it's already begun. It, it, it says that the devil put it into his heart. The devil put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Remember back in, in chapter 12, Judas, uh, when, when Mary breaks the perfume open and anoints Jesus, Judas was appalled at, uh, he was appalled at Mary for wasting the perfume used to anoint the Savior. We learned in that passage that Judas liked to collect money. Not only collect money, to steal some for himself. That's all we ever really know about him. That he was the, the keeper of the money bag or the money box and you know, when money was put into that and, you know, it was for whatever goods they needed as they were traveling or maybe even to give some to the poor, Judas was slipping a couple of bucks here and there into his pocket. This was a real problem for him. So much so that when the opportunity presented itself, again, Jesus is a wanted man. Clearly, there is, there is a price out for his head. He seized another opportunity to make some easy, easy cash. I mean, at this point, it's clear that he's in no way invested in the ministry of Jesus. There, there's no way he's invested in anything of eternal value. Judas's main focus is materialistic and self-centered. And again, Jesus is aware of all of this. He indicates this back in verse 11. He says, not all of you are clean, meaning fully washed, meaning saved, meaning, meaning saved. I don't know. I was going to elaborate on that. Jesus says, I know those I have chosen. I know exactly who you are. I know what's in your heart, and I know what you will ultimately do. 
We read something similar in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. This is after Jesus is teaching some very harsh things, things that are not so easily digestible, things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And people are like, what is this dude talking about? These sayings are too hard to understand. And a lot of them begin to leave. And Jesus then looks at his disciples and says, will you go as well? And Peter, obviously, in you know, that very famous response, says, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of life. And Jesus' response essentially is, yeah, but you didn't choose me. Didn't, didn't I choose you? Didn't I ask you to follow me? Essentially, he's saying, I know you. I am in no way a victim of any of you. Nothing you do has not already or will not be God-ordained. I know those I have chosen, even the one who is a devil. But the scripture must be fulfilled. Okay, so what is about to happen will not shock Jesus, will not shock God in any way. This is part of the ultimate plan. Jesus then quotes Psalm 41.9. A psalm of David about the betrayal of a close companion. Even my friend in whom I've trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Jesus knew that Judas was a traitor. He chose him knowing that. And he chose him knowing that when he betrayed him, it would ultimately fulfill Scripture. That's why Judas... Not the person necessarily, but the role of Judas is so important. Even Jesus, while praying for his disciples in John 17, 12, I believe this will be on the screen. He's praying to God about the disciples. He says to the Father, while I was with them, with who? The disciples. I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, Judas. Why? So that the scriptures may be fulfilled. So it's important to note that Judas did what Judas did by his own will. I want you to understand that. That Judas made the decision to betray Jesus as Judas within his own will. Under the influence of Satan, he made the decision to betray Jesus to the religious leaders. And when he did, God knew about it. And used it in his divine plan. God knew it would happen all along. Psalm 49, or Psalm 41, verse 9 is fulfilled. How about Psalm 55, uh, verses 12 and 20? Again, there's this psalm about a betrayal of a friend. And what David is saying in Psalm 55, he's talking about the idea that if it was an enemy that was doing this to me, I, I, I would have no idea. And I could outrun him, if anything. I could escape this betrayal. But... This is my friend who's doing this to me, not an enemy. So I have nowhere to hide, essentially. How about Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13? If you read that Old Testament scripture, this is exactly how the betrayal of Jesus goes down. He betrays him for 30 pieces of silver out of guilt and shame for what he has done. He takes that money back. He throws it down on the temple floor at the Pharisee's feet. And then he goes out and he hangs himself. And the Jewish leaders actually, they take that money and they go out with that money and they purchase a potter's field. Matthew uh, chapter 27 verses 3 through 10 explain that verbatim. 
This is a fulfillment of scripture. All of this to say, again, that none of this is a surprise to Jesus. And he's communicating these things to his disciples as a way of indicating to them, hey, when all of this goes down, I'm okay. When this happens, not if, not potentially, when this happens, I'm okay. I'm still in control. This is how it's supposed to happen. Are you listening? The betrayal from his friend Judas in no way undermines Jesus' authority. If anything, it validates his, his authority through the fulfillment of the scriptures. It's pretty incredible. These things should be comforting words to the disciples. We've seen all throughout Jesus' ministry how frail the disciples' faith is. It's up and down. It's left and right. It's, it's non-existent at one point, and then they're all in. And now in just a few short hours, their world is going to come crashing down. And what do we know about them? They're going to be scattered, right? So imagine the shock to understand that there's a traitor in their midst. And not just a traitor, but a traitor of their leader specifically. An already wanted man. There's someone that has already made the deal that I'll turn him in. And if Jesus didn't know anything about this, I mean, imagine if Jesus didn't know anything about what was going on. When it goes down, chaos. But Jesus is reassuring them that I have been anticipating this moment. I know what's going on. I am in control. And I want to point out this simple fact, and this is something that I think you should write down, because uh, in today's culture, in a lot of different Christian circles, they like to, to, to paint Jesus as a victim. Jesus is not a victim. He's not. No, he lays down his life. No one takes it from him. There's this idea that Jesus became a victim of Judas and of the religious leaders and of the Roman Empire because he was ultimately crucified and that was one of their forms of, of punishment. Jesus is not a victim. John 10, 17 and 18, he lays down his life. No one takes it from him. This is important for the world to understand. This is important for us, his followers, to understand. So the devil then overtook Jesus, or Judas, I'm sorry, and, and he acted. But in the process, Judas fulfilled what the scriptures said he would do anyways. Judas was without a doubt chosen by Christ. This was anticipated, this was expected, this was foretold in the scriptures, and Jesus makes the claim that this is so important that the disciples know this. Why? Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it happens, meaning it will happen, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. No doubts about it, I am God. This should not cause any disbelief among any of you. If anything, it should cause you to believe me and believe in me all the more. Jesus didn't tell his disciples about the betrayal because it's something that he had just learned about. He knew it all along, and this plainly shows the grave importance of Jesus' anticipation of his betrayal. Uh, point number two this morning. Jesus encouraged his disciples 
as he revealed his betrayal. Jesus encouraged his disciples as he revealed his betrayal. Look at verse 20 again. Jesus says, truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. And the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Okay, so verse 20, I'm not going to lie. When I first read this passage, and I've read this passage numerous times, but in preparation to preach it, I understood the meaning behind verse 20. I, I, I get the, the, the premise. It's, it's similar to this commissioning language that Jesus uses in other uh, uh, gospel accounts, right? So this commissioning language of the Father sends Jesus, Jesus then sends the disciples. So if the disciples are received by anybody, then Jesus is received. And if Jesus is received, then the Father in turn is received. It's, it's commissioning language. But why here? Why in the midst of foot washing and then explanation of that foot washing, but then backtracking and saying, but I'm also not talking about all of you because here's the thing, the scriptures have to be fulfilled and I'm telling you all of this so that when the scriptures are fulfilled, you'll believe that I am he. And here's the deal, one of you is gonna betray me, but at the same time, if anyone I send receives me and the one who receives me receives him who sent me, like he, he starts this commissioning language, why? Well, Jesus is reminding and he's encouraging his disciples here, both the faithful 11 and Judas, that there is still work to be done. That even in this pivotal moment of betrayal and treason and backstabbing and disruption and pure evil, the integrity of the disciples' commission is not compromised. It remains the same. The reason that they were chosen remains. That nothing about your mission as my disciples changes or is invalidated. That's what Jesus is essentially saying to them. Oh, and by the way, Judas, if you're listening, if you're understanding this statement correctly, rejecting me means rejecting the Father. Jesus just demonstrated plainly how he wants them to serve and love one another, but then he goes on and says, hey, remember though, there's still a command beyond all of that. So yes, be selfless, be sacrificial, and be loving to one another, but then go out and make disciples. That's ultimately what he's going to commission them to do. Show the world that same love. My work here on earth is not done yet. Don't miss it. My work for you, should I say, is not done yet. Jesus' work is going to be done here soon. I know that there is one of you who will betray me, but here's the thing. That's not going to change the rest of yours job to go and make disciples. It doesn't change anything. To proclaim the good news of the gospel, you're still commissioned to do that. That salvation has been made possible through everything that's about to unfold over the next couple of hours. You still have a job to do. So let me remind you that if you go and they receive you, they're ultimately receiving me who sent you. And if they receive me, they receive the Father as well. And so let me just pause here and encourage the church this morning to put it quite crassly, don't allow the crappiness of the church body. The other people you serve with, don't allow that when, when they fail 
or when they walk away or when they betray the faith or whatever, don't allow that to keep you from your commission as believers in Christ. Nothing changes about God's purpose and will for us in this life when someone else walks away. And if something does change in your life because of a hurt or a betrayal or, or a forsaking of the faith by a fellow believer, if something does change in you, then your focus and your faith and your trust and your belief was in the wrong thing. Because we know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are not. So there might be some that betray. There might be some that fall away. There might be some that fail. Our commission as disciples of Jesus Christ does not change based upon whether or not human beings are successful in this commission or walk away or fail. Betrayers do not change the truth. Those who forsake the things of God do not change the truth. People who reject Christ and his gospel message do not change the truth. But here's the thing, the world loves it when these hypocrites fall flat on their face. It's like they're just waiting for it to happen. The world loves it when leaders in the church fall away and forsake the name of Christ. It's as if it gives them some more justification and ammo for their unbelief. See, that's why, that's why you don't believe in this guy. That's why it's just a phony religion. That's why it's just like every other religion. That's why I don't go to church. That's why I don't believe. That's why I don't do the things you do because all of you are just like me and you screw up and you fall away so you're no different. But here's the thing. Hear me out this morning. Better yet, hear Jesus out this morning. Betrayers and hypocrites do not change anything for true followers of Christ. No part of our commission to go and make disciples hinges on the reliability, on the faith, and on the follow-through of other people. The only thing it hinges on is the work of Jesus Christ, and that work was done, and it was complete, and he, he died, he, he was buried, and he rose again. It's not on us. The work of salvation is done. Jesus is resurrected, so nothing can undo that truth of the gospel. No one can stop God and his ultimate plan to save those whom he will. Really, it's on God to hold this all together. And we believe that he's, you know, all-knowing and all-powerful, and, and, and we believe that he's sovereign over all things, and yet we still act as if there's something that we need to do to hold all of this together. Here's the thing. It's up to God to hold all this together and bring all things to pass according to his plan. And guess what? He did it then, he does it today, and he will continue to do it until that plan is complete. So along with this revelation of the betrayal, which we're about to talk about, comes this encouragement for the disciples, for the faithful disciples, the other 11, the ones that would not betray. Here's some encouragement. Even though one of you is going to betray me, I want to encourage you and say that Stay on course. I'm preparing you. Let's look at verse 21 again. It says that when Jesus had said this, when he had said these things, when he had just encouraged his disciples, he was troubled in his spirit. Now, Jesus seems to have been troubled in his spirit a lot recently. We've been hearing a lot of this type of language in John's gospel recently. Now, 
I can imagine that in light of all of what was going to unfold over the next couple of hours, I can imagine why. But in this moment, knowing that one of your closest friends is going to betray you ultimately to your death, uh, Leon Morris, he's a, a Bible scholar and, and Bible commentator, he puts it this way. He says, though John pictures Jesus as in control of this situation, and no doubt he is, he does not want us to think of him as unmoved by the events through which he is passing. Remember, this is Jesus' friend. A friend he's known for three years and that he has walked the streets with, that he has done ministry with, that he has laughed and cried with, no doubt, that They've hung out for three years nonstop. It's his friend. And here's the thing. You may have experienced betrayal by someone you love. I'm sure you have. Big or small. Doesn't matter. Betrayal is betrayal. It hurts. And I'm sure it hurt when that went down. But the main difference is that betrayal in your life caught you by surprise. But to walk around day after day, after day, for three years with this person, knowing that they would betray you. Knowing that they would ultimately be the one to set the ball in motion for you to be put to death. The troubling of Jesus' spirit, no doubt, was rooted both in the hurt and betrayal that he would experience by this close friend, but also, remember, the deep hatred for the sin in Judas's heart. Not hatred of Judas, but hatred of the sin in his heart. I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about here. This is God in the flesh who lived with one of the most wretched men in all of human history. A walking hypocrite. The betrayer of the Son of God. It's in this, in this state of, of troubled, uh, of his spirit being troubled, that he makes this declaration. It says that he testified. That means that he openly said it for the room to hear. He testified in the midst of his sorrow, the troubling of his spirit, and the grief in his heart. He proclaims this truth. One of you will betray me. Not only that, he begins this statement by saying, truly I tell you. This is such an unbelievable statement that he's about to make that he makes sure that they take it seriously. No, 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 believe me. I know. One of you will betray me. So it's been revealed. So not only have we seen Jesus' anticipation of his betrayal, we've seen his encouragement to disciples as he revealed his betrayal. But point number three this morning is that the disciples questioned the betrayal. The disciples questioned the betrayal. Makes sense. Let's look at verses 22 through 25. It says, the disciples started looking at one another. Uncertain which one he was speaking about, one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? So complete and utter confusion fills this room. I can understand why. Everything that has happened up until this point 
around the dinner table, all this talk of loving and serving one another and the foot washing and just the, the amazing uh, experience of that with your, your Messiah, not only that, but with your teacher, not only that, but with your friend. And then, boom, truth bomb explodes and it leaves everyone in the room just shocked and confused and what it, What? It was not obvious to the other 11 disciples that Judas was the one. It wasn't obvious to the disciples who he was talking about. Clearly, there would have been no reason to suspect Judas or anybody else for that matter. Maybe, to the disciples now, maybe, just just maybe, Jesus was just alluding to some kind of accidental or unintended betrayal, you know. Jesus is a one in man. Maybe something will go down in the next couple of days or weeks or months and... One of us might accidentally betray him or not mean to. Maybe that's what he's talking about. We're told in Matthew and Mark's Gospels that the disciples actually begin to question and ask Jesus things like, is is it me? Surely not. It it can't be me. He's not talking. You're talking about me, Lord? What what are you saying? Charles Spurgeon, he, he, um, he makes a great statement about this particular instance. I like it. I think it's interesting. It says this, it is a beautiful trait in the character of the disciples that they did not suspect one another. It's giving them a little bit of a, a little bit of credit here. But every one of them inquired almost incredulously as the form of the question implies, Lord, is it I? No one said, Lord, is it Judas? This indicates that any one of them, they realize any one of them apparently is is capable of something like this. I think that's incredible. It's not like, well, okay, regardless, there are questions from the disciples about this claim. I don't want to get into that too much. Judas, no doubt, was part of those questioning this huge claim. We know that from another gospel account. I'll talk about it in a second. Judas was a hypocrite, though. He had the disciples fooled for three years. None of them suspected him in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, we know from this passage that he is under the influence at this point during the the night of the biggest master of deception, Satan. And is about to be overcome by Satan entirely. We'll see that in a couple verses. And let me just say this as a sidebar. There are always hypocrites in the church. Always. There's always hypocrites in the church. There's always hypocrites in different ministries that you're going to be a part of. There's hypocrites out in the mission field. Satan makes certain of that. It's one of his his tactics. It causes distraction and division amongst the church. But hear me out. Jesus knows. And God will judge So, and I'm going to say this carefully, because I think it's important to call people out, brothers and sisters in Christ especially, you know, whenever we see someone fail. But I also want to say, don't worry so much about what everyone else is doing. Don't get so distracted or caught up in what and where and how everyone else fails. We know from the scriptures that this this is true. That hypocrites are amongst the church. That, that, that people like this exist. The disciples, however, 
I'll give them a little bit of credit. They don't really know much of, of what we know from the New Testament writings, obviously, because they have not been written yet during this time. So the New Testament writings about hypocrisy and how to deal with that within the church have not been written yet. The letters from Paul and how to deal with certain things in regards to church discipline and things like that, they don't know any of that yet. And yet, Jesus did, in fact, warn them of such realities. They're not without excuse. Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. I'm not going to read it, but it's a parable about the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. They clearly didn't know what to make of all of this stuff about true followers and hypocrites just coexisting together in the body of Christ. Coexisting together in the mission and the ministry of Jesus. And in this situation, they can't, they can't land on anybody. Who are you talking about? So amongst all these rumblings, two of the disciples decide to take initiative and find out from the source himself. Let's find out from Jesus. Let's just ask him. Now, from what we see from the text, Peter and John may have been the only ones to know anything at this moment in time. But with that in mind, we are given no indication of it actually being known by any of them. In fact, we're, we're given a pretty clear indication that, indication that none of them, even including the two that are going to ask, have any idea who he's talking about or what he's referring to. Jesus has predicted that one of the men present at this meal would betray him. Peter, as we know, is very protective of Jesus. He runs his mouth a lot and he's ready to fight at all times. Matter of fact, in a couple of chapters, we're gonna see him draw his sword in the garden of Gethsemane. The moment Jesus is betrayed, he's ready to go. He prompts the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John referring to himself. I mean, if I was writing a gospel account and I hung out with Jesus, that would definitely be the title that I chose for myself. The disciple that Jesus loved the most and who was the most handsome. Jesus was digging on his tattoos. Okay, anyway, he prompts John, find out who he's talking about. I just, I, there's no exchange here, but I just imagine Peter, whether he's sitting next to John, sitting across the table from John, like motioning to him, like, ask him. And here's the thing. So this seems like a private conversation between John and Jesus, because we see that he reclines back. We'll talk about that. But there's, there's commotion, no doubt, in the room still. So everyone isn't just sitting here listening to this go down, but we're not given indication that this is a private conversation. This could have been audible for the room to hear, and yet they still have no clue. Now, let me explain. At a ceremonial meal like this, they would sit around a table leaning on their left elbow. This was customary at the time, leaning on their left elbow, and they would be reclined backwards. So their feet would be away from the table, and they would lean this way and eat with their right hands. That's just how they did things there. And so uh, it seems from John's position that he's right next to Jesus. He could lean back and be close enough to speak to Jesus very clearly. Some translations say that he leaned back on Jesus's breast or on his chest, meaning that as he leaned backwards, he's literally right up against Jesus. This would indicate to us that uh, then that John was, was on his right side, okay? So in order to ask 
uh, his question, he has to lean back. And funny enough, he can probably hear Jesus better than anyone else because he's right beside him. But he's in an awkward position to really see anything that goes down, especially if what goes down is behind him. But in my mind, there's so much happening in just a few short exchanges and sentences that it's, it's almost hard to keep up. Because again, this is, this, this is such a shock to them. And then all of this stuff goes down and it's, it's kind of hard to keep up. Neither John nor the others seem to realize that Jesus is about to identify Judas as his betrayer in plain sight. So we've seen up until this point that Jesus anticipated his betrayal. Not only that, that he encouraged his disciples while he revealed his betrayal. Not only that, then the disciples' response is that they questioned what it is that would go down about this betrayal. And then point number four and last of this morning, Jesus spoke directly with his betrayer. Jesus spoke directly with his betrayer. Verse 26, Jesus replied, so this is a response to, to John's question, Lord, who is it? We have no idea if this is audible for the entire room to hear. We have no idea if this is just to John. But either way, Jesus says, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him and Judas kept the money bag, so some thought that he was telling, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. And after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left, and it was night. So this is the moment. This is the moment that Jesus faces his betrayer. And when I was writing out my sermon points, um, I thought about making this point, Jesus confronted his betrayer, but... That, to me, gives more of a, a, a confrontation-type feel. A, hey, you better not go through with this. Because when you confront someone, it's almost like calling them out on, their, on their, whatever their problem is or whatever it is that they're doing. We don't see that here. This is not Jesus outing Judas to the disciples. This is not Jesus saying, hey, whenever, whoever I give this piece of bread to after I've dipped it, here you go, Judas, get him. He's right here. This is the one that's going to do it. We don't see that. Matthew's gospel includes some details which John does not feel the need to include in his. While John refers to Judas simply taking this bread and then leaving, which we're going to get to in a minute, Matthew indicates that Judas directly asks Jesus if the prediction is about him. This is Matthew 26, verse 25. He says, surely not I, rabbi. Surely you're not talking about me. Matthew indicates that Jesus then gives Judas a direct response. You have said it. Now, you could read that one of two ways. You could read that in an accusatory way where Jesus is like, you're saying it. I read that as with some heartbreak in Jesus' words. One last chance to repent, Judas. You have one last chance to not do what it is that I know you're going to do anyway, but I want to offer you this one last chance. And no one seems to respond to any of this. 
John here fills in then what Matthew leaves out in the emotional chaos and confusion of this moment. This exchange between Jesus and Judas is obviously lost lost or misunderstood. Different disciples probably heard different things. No one clearly understands the exchange that just went down. They're all interpreting in a different way apart from two people. No one else understands what it is that just went down. And those two people are Jesus and Judas. They're the only two that really know what's going on here. Now, what's the significance of this piece of bread being dipped? Without going into great detail, in the ancient world, uh, sharing food with someone, specifically being the first one to receive food at a meal, had implication of, of great friendship or, or a peace offering. I think this is understandable even to an extent in our culture, right? When you, when you have uh, guests over your house for dinner, typically you allow them to plate their food first. You allow them to serve themselves first. It's, it's, it's um, a sign of hospitality, sign of friendship, right? Not only this, but remember, Jesus knows what will happen in the coming hours. And yet, he has, just moments ago, washed Judas's feet. We're not given any indication that he skipped over Judas. Like, nah, I'm not going to wash your feet. I know you're my betrayer. It's assumed, it's assumed by the readers that Judas was one of the ones that Jesus washed his feet. And it's here with the piece of bread that he shows one last expression of friendship to the very person who will set the final hours of his life in motion. There is a British Bible scholar, his name is RVG Tasker, which is probably the coolest name ever. I'm probably going to legally change my name to that. RVG Tasker, just sounds scholarly. He says this, when Jesus offers Judas a special morsel, so the bread, from the common dish, such as it was customary to offer, or for a host to offer an honored guest, it is a mark of divine love which ever seeks to overcome evil with good. I mean, what love and mercy is displayed from Jesus in this moment? And then, however, we have a very sad and and heavy verse of Scripture, verse 27. It says, "After after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Now, it was already in the heart and will of Judas to betray Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 2, we, 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 we understood that. It was already in the heart of Judas to do this. And remember, the money exchange has already gone down. It already happened. It was more about finding the opportunity to do it. It's in this moment as if accepting the bread from Jesus revealed that Judas was completely and utterly unaffected by his loving gesture and appeal. If there was any hesitancy on Judas's behalf, surely he would have said, I, I can't accept that. But here's the thing. He takes it, and from that moment, Satan had complete control over him. He completely shut out any hope in his heart towards Jesus and basically opened it for the devil to completely occupy. There's no turning back at this point for Judas. Now, who would know this? Jesus. 
the Son of God. And what does Jesus say to him in this moment? What is the exchange between Jesus and his betrayer? What does he say to him? He says, what you're doing, do quickly. If we translated the original Greek in a more direct or literal way, we would read this as, hurry up. Let's get this over with. I mean, do you see it? This, this is a command from Jesus. I'm done with you. Go and do what you must do. Jesus wanted him gone. And in a way, needed him to be gone. Why? So that he could take the next few hours to really invest in and promise things to his true followers. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks. Nothing he has to say from this point on is for Judas. It's not. You are completely sold out to Satan now, so just go. All you have to do is read verse 31 to know that, which we're going to do in a couple weeks, you'll know that there are things that Jesus needs to say. There's a new commandment that he's going to give. But here's the thing. For that conversation to begin, Judas, Judas has to leave because it's not for him. Verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Verse 18, I'm not speaking about all of you. Again, Jesus is very clear that there's one person in particular that he's not referring to when he's talking about these things. Not only that, he needed him to leave to do what it is that he was setting out to do. And what was that? What was he setting out to do? He was, unbeknownst to him, about to set in motion the greatest rescue mission the world has ever known. The redemption of mankind was about to to be put in motion, so to speak, by this act. And I love that, that Satan, through Judas, was a key player in his own demise, in his own downfall. I love that. Verses 28 and 29, as far as the others were concerned, Judas was simply going to run an errand. They had nothing to suspect. Either he was going to pay expenses for the meal they were about to partake in or even give, them, uh, give the money as charity. Uh, he was going to give it to the poor. That's something they often did. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to them. No doubt they heard this exchange but had no idea what to make of it. Think about it. If they had known, especially someone like Peter, would they not have tried to stop him? Surely they would have. Let's wrap this up. Verse 30. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left. But the taste of that piece of bread and all that it represented, still in his mouth, Judas left. He left his teacher, he left his friend, and he left his savior. It says he went out into the night Meryl C. Tenney, professor of New Testament and Greek, says this, his, Judas's act, however, was more than an incidental act of treachery. He sold himself to the power of evil. John places an emphasis on the concept of light and darkness in his gospel. We've seen that quite a bit as we've been studying. This is something Jesus talked about, apparently, that really stood out to John. The end of verse 30 says, and it was night indicating that this is no accident or coincidence. 
Judas is leaving the presence of Jesus and disappearing into the night. He's disappearing into the darkness. Judas would never see daylight again, literally. He would end his life before dawn broke, let alone see the light of the world again and the light of life again. Judas, a man who walked with the Savior of the world for three years, witnessed countless miracles, heard hundreds of teachings, and experienced the love of God himself, fell into eternal night and darkness at this moment in history. How sad. So what do we do with all this? I think there's plenty of things that we could take from this passage. I'm going to name a few. As dark and as sad as this passage may be, I would say first and foremost that Judas reveals to us that we, we in our fallen state of sin need more than just a good example. We need more than just good teaching because Judas no doubt had the best example and the greatest teacher and yet he was still lost. We need a savior. I think we can use this story as an example of lost opportunity. I've kind of mentioned this before. Judas, he had everything, not literally, not not materially, but he had everything in regards to walking with the Son of God. He knew Emmanuel personally, and yet was clearly enticed and driven by other things. And you might be thinking to yourself, as I have done on more than one occasion when I read about the betrayal of Jesus, oh, I I would never have done that. Would you, though? I'm sorry, but correct me if I'm wrong. Do we not betray Jesus all the time when we participate in the sin of adultery or uh, idolatry? When we, when we place something higher than our want and desire and trust and belief in Jesus. I... I, I This thing, this whatever it is, is something that I want more than Jesus. I'm placing all my faith and trust in in this. We may not say these things out loud, but we sure live them out loud. How about the danger of loving money and pursuing earthly things? That could be something we draw from this. How about the fact that living a life as a hypocrite will always catch up to you? Living a double life, it'll always catch up to you. How about the influence of Satan in our lives? The fact that he is real. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. So be on guard. Maybe reflecting on the patience and love and mercy of Jesus in this moment. I think these are all important things, but above all this morning, I want to remind you of something. That God is sovereign over this entire situation. If you missed it, it was in my first point. We read in verse 19 that Jesus is warning his disciples about these things so that when they happen, they will believe that he is God. This points to nothing but the magnitude of God and his sovereignty of all things. So hear me out. Nothing sinful men can do can or will ever thwart the plan and purposes of God. It won't happen. We just read evidence to the fact that Satan, through influence and eventual possession of Judas, would carry out one of the most vile acts of betrayal and treachery in all of human history, and yet doesn't even realize that in turn he's condemning himself 
to death. That it is through this act of betrayal just hours later that the ball will be set in motion for Jesus' suffering to begin, to then go to the cross, to die, be buried, and then rise again. This is what sets this in motion. And don't forget that all of this was brought about by a man, a human being, just like you and I, a sinner. That such evil could even be possible. It's it's unfathomable, and yet we see it all the time. We see it today. We see it all throughout Scripture. Sinful men and evil just, just showing its ugly face in and through us all the time. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible is is Joseph in the Old Testament. The end of the story, through all the chaos, confusion, betrayal, lies. Seriously, if you've never read that story before, uh, read it tonight. It's 14 chapters. We read books that are way longer than that all the time. Genesis 37 through 50. Just read it. It's incredible what goes down. People say the Bible is boring. Mm-mm. Maybe some parts of Leviticus, but I'm reading Leviticus right now. <laughs> Here's the thing. At the end of the story, when all comes to completion, just how God intended it to be, by the way, we read in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph, standing before his brothers, that years ago plotted death against him, decided to spare his life, they're so generous, and decided, rather, we're just going to sell him into slavery and then fake his death to trick our father, because they just didn't like him. They just didn't like him, so let's kill him. Now nah, we might not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. And then Joseph, through all of these up and downs in his life, is now in a position of authority, basically is the deciding factor of whether or not his brothers will live or die through the famine Joseph looks at his brothers and says, you have planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Is that not what we're reading about in John's gospel? That you, Judas, planned evil against Christ. But God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the eternal survival of many people. God is sovereign over all. God is supreme. God is who he says he is and always will be. Nothing can or will ever change the plan and purposes he has set in motion for all of mankind. That is a fact. And it is so encouraging to those who truly believe and follow Jesus Christ. To God be all glory, honor, and praise.